everyone, this is Amanda Warshall Dan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, as Israel is experiencing a minor surge of the Delta or Indian variant of the coronavirus, I speak with the New York Times South Asia Bureau Chief, Jeffrey Gettleman, who is based in New Delhi. We discussed the horror of the height of the pandemic in India, which the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist describes as every nation's nightmare. Prior to his four years in India, Jeffrey has reported from war fronts in Afghanistan and Iraq, was taken hostage briefly in Fallujah, has covered conflict in Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, Egypt, and Yemen. Covering the pandemic is different, he said, and much closer to home. Hear about the overloaded healthcare system and how India is slowly stymieing the pandemic. Hi, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today? I am in New Delhi, India, in my house. Great. Thank you for taking the time to be with me today. We're here to talk about, of course, the horrible uh, pandemic and how it struck India, but also about your life as a as the South Asia Bureau Chief for the New York Times based in New Delhi. So to begin with, give me just a bit of a sense. What is happening in India right now in terms of the coronavirus pandemic? Life is coming back to normal slowly. Um, there is still a lot of fear. There are still lockdown restrictions. Um, the vaccination rates in India are very low. Um, but the case numbers and the number of people who are sick and the number of people who are in the hospital, all that is way lower than it was two months ago. We had a really horrific and terrifying April and May in India. Uh, I was living here with my family. I was covering this every day. We saw this surge of cases that just galloped up from from very low numbers to 400,000 new cases per day, more than any other country in the world has ever recorded. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many cases in India and so many people dying who are not being recorded as COVID deaths. The record keeping and the official counting and sharing of information here is much different than it would be in Israel or in the U.S. or in developed countries. So when I say that in, in April and May, we had 400,000 new, 400, new cases a day, it was likely you know five times that number. And the same with the death, the, the, the fatalities from COVID. It was you know, an official 4,000 per day. It was probably more like you know, 15 to 20,000 people dying every day in India from COVID. That was the worst of it. Um, we're now coming out of that. The numbers are much lower. It's like 1,000 official uh, COVID deaths a day, about 50,000 um, new cases a day. Those are just numbers. And if you talk about numbers too much, it all gets kind of lost. But the, the takeaway is that people are feeling more more, more confident um, to go outside, to socialize, to go back to work. People are still wearing masks. Traffic is less than it is on a normal day. Stores are, are half open or not all of them are open. Restaurants are partially open. Public spaces are partially open. So it's like you're coming down from this wave of lots and lots of, of fear and, and sadness and grief and, um, and, and sickness and death. We're coming off of that. We're not in the clear um, but it's much better than it had been two months ago. So India's population is something like 1.4 billion now. 
Are there parts of the country that were more struck than others? We don't really know. That's like a big issue of being a journalist in India and trying to understand and explain what's happening in India. We really don't know. The official numbers are so, you know, are just these gross underestimations of the real situation. So we don't, and, and it gets, and it gets harder to tell what had happened or is happening when you leave the big cities. If you go into rural India, if you're trying to figure out how many people are sick or how many people have died in villages across India, and there are thousands of them, it's really hard to know because they're not doing testing. Um, the, the, the doctors in the hospital sometimes are not reporting COVID deaths. Some people feel the stigma or this fear to even go seek medical uh, treatment. And so there are sick people at home kind of hidden away by their families. So I just, that's a long preface to say, from what we know, it's been worse in the cities. India is, you know, the second most populous country in the world after China. And it is home to some of the biggest mega cities on the planet. New Delhi and Mumbai have at least 20 million people each. That's one city. And then there's a list of cities like Ahmedabad, Surat, Calcutta, Chennai, um, uh, you know, several others that have more than 5 million people. So those are the places that were hardest hit. And Delhi especially was really hard hit. And one of the worst things, and we can talk more about this, was this oxygen crisis where lots of people were suffering from, 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 from infected lungs and they were having trouble breathing and they just needed an oxygen supply some needed to be put on ventilators, but others just needed a steady flow of pure oxygen to, to survive. And this city ran out. We saw it. It ran out of oxygen. Hospitals all of a sudden had to cut off their, their oxygen systems and dozens of people died in several different incidents uh, over many weeks. And it just kept happening again and again and again. And it was a production problem. There wasn't enough oxygen being produced. It was also a distribution problem. It wasn't being shared or managed as well as it could have been. And it just resulted in a lot of avoidable deaths. That was the worst. I know Israel organized several shipments of oxygen and other medical-related items. A drop in the bucket in such a vast country, but Israel itself, or many Israelis, definitely feel a, a huge closeness to India because so many of us uh, go and visit. I was there about 20 years ago. I'm sure the country has changed in many ways, but perhaps in many ways not. As you're talking about, many of the cities are these sprawling, sprawling masses of populaces, but the countryside, as we found it 20 years ago, was still very much in a village-like format that didn't necessarily have electricity all the time. Is that still the case in India? India has changed a ton. I mean, Israel has changed a ton. I visited Israel uh, several times in my, in my recent years. And, you know, it's, it's changed dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, India, even more so, even more so. Uh, the economy here has really taken off in the last decade and a half. And that has produced lots of new jobs lots of new apartment buildings, lots of new factories and opportunities. But there still are hundreds of millions of Indians who live in deep poverty, who, who 
barely scrape by on a few dollars a day, who may not have electricity, probably don't have running water in their homes, have really bad health care. And that's what this pandemic laid bare was just these cracks that we all knew existed in Indian society and in Indian governance. And it just, just was just this you know widening gulf between what people needed and what they could get. Um, and let me just say one thing about Israel and India. Israel is a really important strategic partner to India. Um, there are many Israelis that live and work in New Delhi. I have, I have lots of friends that are at the embassy and that are in private business and agriculture and security and technology. And there's a really warm and growing relationship between these two countries, which are very different. I mean, you have one of the smallest developed countries in the world, uh, you know, with a really tough military and, you know, a long, a long history um, of, of standing up for itself. And then you have this enormous, you know, nation of 1.4 billion spread across the subcontinent with almost a pacifist ideology. Um, and they've, they've found some common ground and really important issues like life security, like technology, like agriculture. And I've been here for four years. I've been the, the New Delhi bureau chief for the New York Times for four years. And I've seen each year like that relationship getting stronger. Um, and there's just a lot of pride on both sides. It's like these two countries have discovered a, a friend in each other. And it's really cool. They seem to, 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 to get, you know, to, to just draw a lot out of that. And they're building on it. Like, it's just, it's, there, there are more and more business ties and, and more and more government ties. And just a lot of mutual respect. That's what I hear. Like, there's not a lot of complaining. The Israelis aren't complaining about the Indians. The Indians aren't complaining about the Israelis, which is much different for, you know, relation, other, other international relations in this region. There's so many Israelis who travel to to India that the idea that our population is basically half of one of the larger cities in India was just an astounding fact for most of the Indians we spoke with because they see so many Israelis uh, doing their year after the army or or whatever, taking a, a bit of a break to clear their heads. So I want to ask you, this is one thing we have in common right now, our two countries. In Israel, we're experiencing... a still a minor surge of the Delta variant, which was originally found in India in February. What do you know about this variant? And should Israelis be uh, concerned? I think everybody should be concerned. And it's really scary that a lot of science and resources have gone into <clears throat> creating these state-of-the-art vaccines and the virus is mutating very fast, especially in places where it's spreading quickly. And that's, that's, that's raising questions about how effective vaccines will be against these new variants. So one way of looking at it is India is the perfect Petri dish for a variant. What, what, what a virus is trying to do, it's trying to evolve. And the more it spreads, the more it jumps from one person to another, the more chances it can, it can redefine itself. It can change. It can mutate. And India with such fast transmission, I mean, unbelievably fast transmission, huge slums, huge spaces, you know, hundreds of millions of people in close proximity to each other and a virus racing through that population, changing as it goes. That's what happened. And this variant was discovered actually in October in mm. India. Um, it started getting publicity in February and March, but it was first picked up in October. 
And what's concerning about this variant is that it was, it was first known as the double mutant because it has two mutations that were detected on other variants. One was a mutation that was identical to this California variant, which is highly contagious. And then there's another mutation, which is similar, not identical to the Brazilian uh, variants, um, which appears to be possibly more evasive to vaccines. Now, we don't know if it's deadlier. So if you get sick from this variant versus you get sick from the, 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 the Wuhan variant, the original parent virus, I, from what we know, you have the same chances of, of going to the hospital, surviving, et cetera. But it seems like this is more transmissible. And that's what we saw in India. It was stunning to live here through the second wave. Just about everybody we knew had somebody in their family who got sick. Um, across my neighborhood, household after household, somebody was getting sick. In my office, a small office of about 10 people, several people got sick. We, we, we sadly lost an elderly office manager who had been working for the New York Times for decades. He got, he got sick and died. That, that, was, that was last year. Um, but, you know, it was just part of this bigger pandemic that just doesn't seem to, to skip over any, any community. And the, 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 the fact you had two things happening. You had this, this highly transmissible variant that was making many people sick at the same time which was totally overloading the healthcare system. The nightmare that we've all feared in our own countries happened in India, which was too many people were getting sick at the same time that the healthcare system couldn't cope. And while that was happening, you had this run on supplies and you, there wasn't enough medicine. There wasn't enough hospital beds. There wasn't enough medical oxygen, something as simple as, as just air. And India produces lots of oxygen. Yeah, I, I, compressed oxygen is part is a byproduct of the steel business. And these big steel factories, they make a lot of this, uh, this, this oxygen that can be stored at low temperatures and then shipped around. So India has a lot of it, but it just wasn't, it, it wasn't in the right places at the right time. So during this, this, this second wave, you just had a lot of people who, were help, who felt helpless. I had friends who were really sick. Nobody could help them. Nobody could get them a, a hospital bed. It didn't matter if you were well-connected, had a good job, knew people in government. It didn't matter. There was just no space or no oxygen or no medicine. So that's what really began to sow panic in India was if you get sick, there's going to be nowhere to turn for help. And even though in the U.S. and Israel and Brazil and South Africa and Italy, you know, we've all had variations of this, you know, curse We've all lived this. We've all had friends who've gotten sick. We've all been worried about ourselves. But in India, you really saw this collapse. And it lasted for several weeks before the virus ran its course. Not permanently, but just for that wave, which meant that it infected a lot of people very fast. It wasn't so easy then to find new people to infect. And the cases went down. And the hospitals began to empty out. And the medicine was back on the shelves. And the oxygen was available again. But that was only after, you know, who knows, hundreds of thousands of people probably died. We don't even know. And we probably will never know. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site.
Now, as you're doing your reporting for the New York Times, which is obviously not the Times of India, you can't be reporting on the micro uh, processes that are happening every day in the country. How are you finding the human faces to put on these stories so that people abroad, outside of India, can actually get a handle on what's going on? It's a really good question because we were limited. We were taking few risks. When, 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 when we were in the height of this in April and May, uh, I, as the boss of the small team here, made the decision that we should not go outside and, and go into hospitals and go into crowded places and interview victims and patients and medical providers. Like That was too risky because if any of us got sick, we'd have nowhere to turn to. So we were more or less at home with a few quick little forays out to see what was going on. So it was hard. We had to use our phones. We had to send emails. We had to troll social media. We had to get in touch with people in virtual ways, which is like so frustrating as a journalist because you, you want the contact. That's what's, that's what's enlivening. That's, what's, that's what brings your stories to life is describing somebody, having a moment of connection with them and, and bringing that into the story. But we were able to, to still do our work. I mean, one of the stories that I felt proudest of was a story I wrote about two Indian men who were identical twins, who both got sick at the same time, went into the hospital at the same time, fought you know, as hard as they could against severe COVID cases at the same time, and died within hours of each other. They were two men that, that deeply loved each other. They would dress the same. They did the same work. They went to the same college. They were just very, very, very close twin brothers. And, and they went down together. And that story punctuated the statistics because it was just such an interesting story of love. It wasn't just a story of death. It was a story of love, of special love between these two guys that just, you know, cared the world for each other. So we try. We try to, we try to, to find stories that will move people and that will get you to stop and think, oh my God, like, what is this that we're living through right now? And that's a big part of our mission. As the mother of twins, that story especially uh, spoke to me for sure. But I would like to remind our listeners that you are no stranger to danger in terms of your reporting. You've been on the front lines in, in war, in other places of conflict. How would you compare what you have been going through, perhaps it's uh, more relaxed now, to these other reporting experiences in which you were definitely in existential danger all the time as well? Yeah, I got into this business to write feature stories and to explore the world, not to scare the bejesus out of my parents. Um, so, yes, I have. I've worked in East Africa. I've worked in the Middle East. I've, I've worked in Afghanistan. I've spent a lot of time in Iraq during heavy conflict uh, periods. This story is different. It, it's less exciting. It's less dramatic. It's about people who are getting sick and most people survive. Some people don't don't survive, and there's a lot of grief. But it's it's a slower, sadder story without without you know without a lot of the drama that we that we that I had felt in some of these intense conflict zones. It doesn't mean that what's happening isn't tragic. The scale of this pandemic is way bigger than anything I've ever covered. Um, but it's harder to sort of capture the intensity of it because it's slow moving disease, you know, relatively slow moving disease that affects people. Now, in my experience as a journalist covering this compared to these other conflict zones 
it's similar in that you're constantly weighing risks of 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 how can you get the information without putting yourself uh, yourself in danger or endangering others. If I go out and I go straight into the heart of a COVID ward and I interview people who are who are treating COVID patients or people who are fighting for their lives, I'm putting myself at risk. I come back home. I'm putting my family at risk. Uh, I may be putting those people in the hospital at risk if I carry it in. So <clears throat> there's a lot, there's many questions like that. Um, and it's also been harder, frankly, just having a family like with me. I mean, the support I get and the love I get from my, my wife and two kids means everything to me. Um, but it's hard that they are on this story with me, that they're in New Delhi. Uh, right now they're back in the States. But when the second wave hit, we were all here together. We were trapped in a small apartment. They were exposed, you know, to the same risks of that we all were. And, and that, that was unsettling because if my kids got sick or my wife got sick again, I wouldn't necessarily have any quick fix to help them. And I had never been in that position. I had been putting myself into conflict zones to cover big stories, but I was by myself. The family was back home relatively safe. Here, we were all on this assignment together. I've always wondered, as a journalist who's basically only lived in Israel and worked from Israel, how is it to be uh, deployed to a different country every, what, five, seven years at the New York Times? And aren't you meant to be somewhat of a jack of all trades? Now you need to be this health science reporter, but in other places you have to be other types of reporters. How is that in terms of being a journalist deployed in foreign countries? In many ways, it's wonderful, and in other ways, it's totally flawed. Um, it, it, it's an adventure. It's an adventure. It's like that thrill you get of traveling, of stepping off an airplane in a new city, of putting a backpack on and picking up a guidebook and exploring a new place. There's something really wonderful about that. There's something inherently thrilling about changing your surroundings and trying to comprehend a new, a, a new world. Um, that's a real privilege to be able to explore this world, to see so many different types of, so many different people and cultures and histories and countries and landscapes. Like that's a privilege. Um, the world's a big place. Um, and it's really wonderful to sort of understand a little bit about India and a little bit about the Middle East and a little bit about Africa and a little bit about Southeast Asia and to know it and to know what it feels like to be on an island in Indonesia or a mountain in Afghanistan or a jungle in, in Central Africa. Um, I've done that and it's, it's cool. They're all very different. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like having, you know, stepping into a new movie theater in some ways. Um, but there are limits too, because you're, you're, you're ignorant. And, and, you know, sometimes that ignorance is actually an asset you're wide open, you're absorbing information, you're reacting to it. Like you're in Israel and there's a lot of things you see every day that aren't going to move you because you've seen them your whole life or however long you've been there. And there's some really interesting things all around you right now that you may be numb to. So we sort of trade off that. But there's also a real value to understanding the subject, to knowing the history, to knowing the background, to knowing the experts. And and, and our, our profession is a balance between those two things, being an expert with deep knowledge and being a novice with just wide experience, but 
having that sensitivity to newness that allows you to really be excited about, about whatever it is that's around you. And it's hard to be that excited if you've been living and breathing it for, for too long. Do you know where is next for you and when? We're still working that out. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been very enlightening. Thank you. I'd be happy to join whenever you need it. And it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 